No, I think laughter tells us something about the character of Jesus, that he would create a world where love and laughter are a reality. He's not a God that merely demands our earthly obedience or wants to control us with fear. No, he's a God of, of love and laughter. And laughter is, I think, just an incredible gift. Um, a few years ago now, I was at home having, uh, having lunch with my, my two kids, sat at the, uh, the dining room table and um, just eating some bread. Uh, my, my daughter, Millie, picked up this slice of bread and she, she pulled it apart and she held it up and she went, oh, a bread bra. And my son at the time was six years old and it was the funniest thing he has ever seen. And he laughed so hard, he wet himself. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> there was part of me that felt like I should correct that behaviour because it wasn't ideal because he just wet himself at the dining room table. But I couldn't because I was just filled with joy at the sound of my two kids laughing. And I have to say, I don't think there's a sound that gives me much more pleasure than the uncontrolled laughter of my kids. And I think, I think Jesus takes the same pleasure when he hears us laugh. And I also think Jesus would enjoy Only Fools and Horses. I suspect he's also got his top three favourite comedians. Maybe Billy Connolly's a little bit blue for his taste, but I suspect he still finds them funny. But the fact that Jesus would create a world where love and laughter are a reality speaks of a very, very generous heart. <clears throat> and what about creation? What are we to make about creation? Why is it that we react to certain things in creation that we do? Why is it we can stand in awe at wonder at a snow-capped mountain or a beautiful sunrise? It's, um, it's almost as if there is something transcendent about our reactions to creation, in the same way that there's something transcendent about joy and laughter. Now, some, some people may argue that the, the reactions that we feel towards creation, that when we see an amazing sunrise, some may say those stirrings are nothing more than a series of chemical reactions in the brain, that it's some kind of native survival in, instinct in us that helps us thrive and survive. But I think such explanations are wholly inadequate. There is a beauty and a majesty in creation that can only be described as transcendent, i.e. it was created by God for us. It's a gift from God, a gift from Jesus. And um, creation, as we've touched on a little bit this weekend, I think creation tells us quite a bit about the character of Jesus. Because like all works of art... The artist is revealed by the works of art that he or she creates. And I specifically say Jesus is the artist because of how the book of John starts. Famous start to the book of John, and I'll read it to you now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now, John is using a poem to express the wonder of who Jesus is and what he's done. And he's, such profound truths are better expressed in the art form of poetry than they are through mere prose. And John is expressing that Jesus is God, that he always has been, that Jesus is one of the Trinity of the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. And it is through Jesus that the world and all living things were created. And John uses that word, the, the term the word to refer to Jesus. And the reason for that is that the, the word of God has force. It's not just spoken language. When God speaks, things happen. And we see that in the book of Genesis when he speaks creation into, into being. And so when John uses that term, the word, to, to uh, apply to Jesus, he's expressing how Jesus is the artist of creation. So what can we learn about Jesus from creation? What does creation tell us about the artist that created it? Well, many words come to mind for me when I think about creation. Tall trees and mountains are majestic. Um, The weather can be wild and dangerous, as can some animals, grizzly bears, lions, sharks, to name a few. Um, Cherry blossom, uh, rose petals, turquoise seas are beautiful. Uh, The open ocean is powerful. But if I was to choose just one word to describe creation, I would simply say generous. There is a staggering abundance and variety in nature that can almost be described as wasteful. There um, There is incredible abundance in nature, and every year we get blessed with autumn colors. You can see it. Um, on, your, on your drive here, we had a, when we drove here on Friday, the sun was really low and the autumn colours were being let up, lit up incredibly. And um, what I find amazing about that is that every year we get blessed with that same display, that same glorious autumn display. And it's almost as if it takes us by surprise. You know, every year someone will say to me, oh, aren't the autumn colours amazing this year? And I don't think they actually are. I just think we don't think we can help to wonder anew at their beauty. But what I find most amazing about autumn colour is the abundance of it. All across the world, leaves are turning shades of orange, of red and of yellow. And then they just fall to the ground and rot away. Each tree, all displaying these um, thousands of unique little pieces of artwork on every tree. And even some of those trees won't even be seen by a man. But yet the the trees still display their glory year after year. Or should I say his glory. Hoarfrost is another example. On very cold and humid nights, a blanket of ice crystals covers the landscape. All totally unique little crystals of ice. And again, morning dew, another beautiful example Little droplets of water caught between leaves and moss, reflecting the light, watering the fauna. And then when the sun comes up and the day heats up, the hoarfrost melts away. The morning dew evaporates. It is abundance on a cosmic scale that only God could conceive of. Annie Dillard, I think, put it so well. She said, the world is fairly studded and strewn with pennies cast broadside by a generous hand. Just as a brief aside, we are going to be recording these talks. So if you wanted to, and we shared a lot of quotes uh, over the last few days, so there it, we'll put them on the website so you can, you can listen to them again if you want to make notes and hear them again. But creation isn't just abundant. There's a staggering variety in, uh, in creation, a staggering variety of, of landscapes, of weather species, of... of um, uh, what was the word I was looking for? 
I can't remember. But it's all constantly changing. Creation is constantly changing and beyond our imagination. And it's seemingly, I think, mankind is quite a restless species. And a lot of the time we seem to have these conflicting desires in our hearts. On the one hand, we don't like change. We like to know what's going to happen next. We get uncomfortable when we're not sure what's about to happen. But on the other hand, we are far too easily bored. But in creation, we get this perfect balance of consistency and change. There are some things in creation which just don't change. Mountains, rivers, forests, oceans, they're constant, at least in our lifetime. But then there are also things that are constantly changing. The weather and the seasons are predictably unpredictable. The sun and the moon are constantly moving across our landscape. There is this lovely balance between consistency and change in creation. It's almost as if it was created for our enjoyment. Now, I um, <clears throat> have I shared quite a bit over the, in the past. I, I go up to the Lake District quite a bit to do landscape photography. It's my, my passion. And I've spent many, many weeks up, up in the lakes over the years. But it has never failed to surprise me with something new. Every time I go up there, I feel like I'm blessed with something new since the last time I've been up there. Because every day is unique in the Lake District. In fact, everywhere in the world it's unique. Every day the sun rises and sets in a slightly different position from what it did the day before. Every day the temperature is different. The amount of humidity is different. No two clouds ever the same. It rains, it snows, it hails, it thunders. On one day... On the tops of the mountains, it can be so windy you can't stand up. And then the next day, the, the wind can be entirely absent. But one thing is for sure, it's always different. I've sat on the top of, 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 of that peak, actually, and been just wearing a T-shirt. Well, and obviously trousers as well, but I just <laughs> met a T-shirt on top. That wouldn't be good. Um, not a helpful image. Um, and <laughs> Yes, and I've sat on that same peak when it's been covered with snow and ice and there's been a 40 mile an hour wind coming from the Arctic and the wind chill has been minus 20. The, the difference is staggering, but that's part of the beauty of it. Now, I'm only really scraping the surface when I talk about the, the generosity of creation. I've only just spoken briefly about the sights, but what about the smells? Roses, freshly ground coffee. What about, what about the tastes? A good glass of claret or pineapple or the sounds, rolling thunder and birdsong. Um, and then the animals. Um, one morning in the lakes, I, um, I climbed up a small peak to watch the sunrise in the Borrowdale Valley. And it was, it was May time, so I was up there about half past five in the morning, so there were no man-made noises at all. It was only the sound of creation. And all I could hear, and it, it felt incredibly loud because everything else, all the man-made noises were silent. And all I could hear was birdsong, woodpeckers and, and lambs. It was an incredible noise. But what I find most amazing about that joyous noise is that it's always happening every single day around the world that joyful noise is happening whether we are there to hear it or not the abundance of beauty in the world is overwhelming 
And George MacDonald, they use this quote a few times because they love it. He said, God is gloriously wasteful in his creation. Generous doesn't really do it justice, to be honest, when we talk about um, what creation means. I think extravagantly generous is probably a better word. So Jesus is the author of an extravagant, extravagant creation. And if we're to learn anything from what creation tells us about the artist is that he was generous beyond words. But his generosity goes way, way, way beyond creation. And if we're to learn anything from his time on earth, then, it, then we would see that he is, is generous, generous with his very life. And in particular, he was generous with the people that he came across, that wanted his time and attention. But if we're to really understand the depths of what that looked like, then we need to understand a little bit of the context for his time on earth. Because Jesus' life and ministry was at the centre of a political, a social and spiritual powder keg. His life attracted intense scrutiny from the everyday man to the religious leaders to the political power of the time to the spiritual forces of darkness. And N.T. Wright describes this as a perfect storm. And it is a storm caused by the convergence of a gale coming from the west, meeting an overheated high-pressure system, meeting a tropical storm coming from the south. And it was into this storm that Jesus would step. Now that gale coming from the west, as N.T. Wright describes it, is Rome. Rome was the global superpower of the first century. And an overpopulated Rome was reliant on grain from Egypt and the surrounding area. So Israel and Jerusalem was firmly in the grip of Rome. And the Caesar of of the time was extending his power and reach through the region. That was the gale coming from the west. The overheated high-pressure system was the expectations of a nation, and the Jews in particular. The story of the Jews is a repeating cycle of captivity and liberation. For the five centuries leading up to Jesus' time on earth, they'd been held captive by the Babylonians, the Persians, the Syrians, the Egyptians, and now the Romans. And it was the expectations of the Jews that they would be set free, that the Messiah would come and set them free from Roman occupation. They were waiting and expecting another exodus. That is the overheated high-pressure system. And then finally, the, the tropical storm coming from the south is God himself. God is on the move in the form of Jesus. Jesus is indeed going to set his people free. In fact, he's going to set the whole world free. But this freedom is not going to be won in the way that the people expect This freedom will not be won through means of violence, war and political revolution. So this is a storm of the like the world has never seen. All whipped up, um, all set against a backdrop of, of spiritual conflict which we no doubt underestimate. Satan and his emissaries set firmly against the will of God and the mission of Jesus. And this is a storm of the like that, that we cannot possibly imagine. This is not a, a, you know, a pressing work deadline or financial difficulties. This is the pressure from the weight of an oppressed nation meeting the global superpower of the time, meeting the full force of God, all whipped up by Satan and his emissaries. Jesus was under pressure of a cosmic scale. 
but it would be this pressure that would reveal his true character. Because our character is only really revealed under pressure when that veneer of respectability is forced aside. <coughs> Churchill said, you can measure a man's character by the choices he makes under pressure. But yet it's in the midst of this perfect storm and under incredible pressure and scrutiny that Jesus constantly takes time for people, people that want his time and attention. And it's not just the people that can do him a favour. Rather the contrary, actually. He has time for the outcast, the poor, the weak, the demonised. Now, there are many, many wonderful stories about the generosity of Jesus. And, and Greg and Matt both, both shared about um, when Jesus was on the, on the way to, to heal Jairus' daughter. Um, but there's another one that I, I wanted to share, which I particularly like. And it, it's, it comes directly after Jesus has just given the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is a really important part of Jesus' ministry, and, and arguably it was the, the most profound and um, full teaching that Jesus ever, ever, ever gave. And he was attracting huge crowds, his notoriety was rising, and the religious leaders were watching him like hawks. And as he comes down off the mountain, a man comes towards him, uh, the, the crowds are still crowding around him and this man comes towards him and he's a leper and he's in need of healing. Now as you're probably aware lepers were ostracized from the community. They were forced to live away from the community, um, away from everyone else. They had to wear torn clothes and they had to walk around shouting unclean so that people would know to keep their distance because if you came in contact with a leper then you yourself would be classed as unclean, ceremonially unclean. Now, Jesus heals the man, but what is staggering is the way he does it, because he heals him with a touch. Now, that's not something he needs to do. We know that he can heal people all manner of ways. He can even heal people when he's not even present, but he decides to touch the man. And in some respects, it seems like a very odd thing to do, because the religious leaders were waiting for him to slip up and to make himself ceremonially unclean, to defile himself in their eyes would seem like a very odd move. And no doubt the crowds that were, were following him would also not understand why a rabbi would do such a thing, particularly a rabbi that they were hoping would be the Messiah, for surely the Messiah would not defile himself. And if Jesus was thinking merely about his reputation and his credibility as a teacher of the law, then that indeed would be a very odd thing to do. Now, the politically savvy thing to do would be to heal the man, say the word, do the miracle. Prove to the people what you're, you're capable of and not give the religious leaders any ammunition that they can use against you. That would be the way to build his reputation and navigate the politics of his day. But that is the way of the world. The ends justify the means. That is not the Jesus way. But Jesus, in contrast, is only concerned about the man in front of him. He knows what that man needs most is a touch. He knows that that man has been living alone, perhaps for years, with no one going near him, let alone wanting to touch him. Jesus knows that as painful as leprosy can be, it is nothing compared with the pain of a lonely heart. And so he touches the man. 
It is so incredibly generous. So I'm going to show you the first of two clips from the film Les Miserables, and it's the, f- the film from the 1990s with, with Liam Neeson, which is by far the best film, um, in, my, in my opinion. And um, the main, if you don't know the story, the main character, Jean Valjean, was convicted for stealing a loaf of bread, and he, he was imprisoned for 19 years. Um, but he's released from prison, and he's now the mayor of a town, and he's running a, a large factory. And he's also respected... Um, by the people in the town for being a humble man and a generous man. But he's also facing a lot of pressure and on multiple sides, just like Jesus was. He has the pressure of being the mayor of the town. Uh, He has the pressure of, of running a large business. And he's also under pressure from people judging him for his wealth. And in particular, he is under pressure from um, the evil chief inspector, Javet. Now, the chief inspector, interestingly, was also a prison guard when Jean Valjean was in prison. And in the scene you're about to see, um, Javet, the chief inspector, is starting to realise that he recognises Jean Valjean, that Jean Valjean used to be a prisoner. I wanted to show that clip because I thought the generosity that um, Jean Valjean was displaying there was much the same as the generosity we see in Jesus. That injured man, Latif, could offer Jean Valjean nothing, but still he helps the man. In fact, he'd even slandered Jean Valjean, but still he helps him. And he even does it under the cover of darkness because he doesn't want to be seen to be doing the good deed. Now, Jean Valjean could have easily said, I'm a busy man. I'm I'm running a factory. I'm, I'm looking after the town. I'm the mayor. I'm doing enough. I'm giving away my wealth. But he doesn't. He still has time for the man in front of him. It's so incredibly generous, and it's just like Jesus. But yet, there is something, um, something different about the generosity of Jesus, and that is that it is totally free from personal gain or hidden agenda. He gives generously, extravagantly so, but he's not doing it in order to gain our approval or our acceptance or our love. And that is unique. And to explain what I mean by that, um, there are many, many generous people in this world, people who just want to help others, that give their time, their money, their gifts to help others, want to bless others, beautiful people doing beautiful things. But I don't believe any of us give completely selflessly. Predominantly so, perhaps, but I don't think we are ever only selfless in our generosity. Now, to give you some examples of this, um, I, for example, really want you to have a deeper experience of Jesus through what I'm sharing with you now. But equally, I'd really like this talk to go well and this weekend to be a success because, well, I'll feel better about myself as a result. Now, I'm sorry if that that shatters your illusions of my selflessness, but it's simply how it is. Let's take the the example of the money that we give away to the church, to charities, or to to our friends. Is it entirely selfless, is the question? Or perhaps we're giving money away to the church because, at least in part, we want to keep the pastor on side. Maybe we're giving money away to our friends because we in part want them to like us more or respect us more or we want something in return. 
Or let's think about the charitable work that we do. Maybe we're doing charitable work because we feel like we have to do it. That's what we need to do to get to heaven. Maybe we're feeding the poor because it makes, it makes us worthy in some way. Or maybe we're, we're feeding the poor because we want to be seen as a charitable person. Now, if any of that is true, then we are doing it at least in part for ourselves. Now, I'm not saying this is not a binary issue. I am not saying that we only have selfless actions behind our motives. But what I am saying is, I think there is always an, always an element, no matter how small, of personal gain in the things that we do. It may be small, but it is there nonetheless. We are not the selfless creatures that we were created to be, at least not yet. And motive is key. Tozer said, the test by which all conduct must be finally judged is motive. As water cannot rise higher than its source, so the moral quality in an act can never be higher than the motive that inspires it. So what is Jesus' motive behind his extravagant generosity? What is his motive behind creation? Creation that we get so much pleasure and joy from. Is he doing it to um, gain our approval in some way out of a need for our love or some other form of self-interest? No. It is utterly selfless generosity. Jesus doesn't need our approval or our acceptance or our love. Why? Because he is utterly secure in who he is. And I think to explain that, it's probably worth reflecting back on that poem that starts the book of John again. Because if you remember that poem, is John expressing how Jesus is both with God and is God. And he always has been since the dawn of time. Jesus is one of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity being a perfect relationship of three members bound together in infinite love since the dawn of time. So as Jesus has always known and experienced perfect love, then he doesn't need our love. Now he may want it because that's what we're created for. We are created to love him. My point is he doesn't need it. Maybe John puts it more succinctly in 1 John where he simply says, God is love. He is the essence of love. It's who he is. He doesn't love us out of a need. Rather, he knows no other way. And I think also the extravagance of his generosity is a great indication of the freedom through which he gives it. It's not as if he's just giving us 10% of his post-tax income, just giving us what he feels he has to do. No, he gives lavishly. Like a, like a man that wants to shower gifts on his new love. His generosity is only equaled by the freedom through which he gives it. He gives freely with no need of love, acceptance or anything in return. He is generous yet free. I think the story of um, when the prostitute washed the feet of Jesus in the home of Simon the Pharisee is a brilliant story which um, gives us a good insight into the perfect storm that Jesus was in the midst of, but also how he navigated that storm with absolute freedom and amazing generosity. And it's a story told in Luke 7. 
Now, to set the scene for this story, it's really important to know that this is no friendly meal that Jesus has been invited to. Actually, it's a trap. The, um, the Pharisees were out to, to catch him. They wanted to catch him out, and most likely they were looking for evidence to get him arrested. And we see this because of the, the welcome that Jesus gets when he arrives at the home of Simon the Pharisee, because all of the traditional courtesies are omitted. There's no kiss of greeting for Jesus when he arrives. No water is provided to wash his hands. No oil is provided to anoint himself. So there's all those ceremonies that were required for Jesus to prepare himself for the meal had been omitted. And that was no mere, inv- in, um, no mere oversight. That was a snub, an intentional snub. Because the Pharisees, if they were anything, they were meticulous about carrying out rules rituals and customs. Jesus was walking into a very intense situation. The storm clouds were gathering and no doubt the house was full of religious leaders all ready to pounce on his every word. But interestingly Jesus doesn't shy away from the conflict. It says how he goes into the house and he immediately reclines at the table and by reclining at the table he's taking the position of elder Now, in his early 30s, he wouldn't have been the oldest in that room, but what he's effectively doing there is expressing his greater authority. And so the evening is really starting to get quite intense. And the woman at the centre of this story is evidently already in the room, and most likely she has gone there to thank Jesus um, for his his message, his message of forgiveness for all. Um, And the woman starts to cry. And now most likely, she is reacting to the incredible injustice and the rudeness that she has seen towards Jesus. She has seen that snub, and she intends to remedy the situation. Now, bear in mind, she's an adulterous woman. She is a class A sinner in the eyes of the Pharisees. They wouldn't have wanted to be in the same room with her, let alone speak to her or touch her. And in an act of scandalous intimacy, she kneels at his feet She washes his feet with her tears and she wipes them dry with her hair. Now, a woman was not allowed to let down her hair in public. It was believed to be sexually provocative. And if your wife was to do that, then it was grounds for divorce. But here is a woman letting down her hair, kneeling at the feet of Jesus, washing them with her tears and drying them with her hair. And incidentally, that's not a premeditated act She's not doing, she hadn't planned to do this. What she is doing is responding to what the Pharisees had failed to do to Jesus. And effectively, she is hitting back at the Pharisees. She is having a go back at them and exposing what they had failed to do. Now, to say Jesus is in an interesting situation is a massive understatement. Um, Unless he clearly rejects what she is doing, this is going to cost him dearly. The Pharisees are looking on with disbelief and, and um, condemnation, and they will undoubtedly use this against him. So what will Jesus do? Now, for any of us here in this room, and certainly myself, that would be a very, very uncomfortable situation to be in. Unfortunately, the fear of man is an ever-present problem for most of us. We're either... Um, desperately seeking the approval of our fellow man or we're living in fear that we may get found out in some way. And so to have a woman known to be a prostitute behaving 
so intimately, even if it's not sexual in any way, but to have a woman react like that to you in front of important people that you might want to impress, well, that would be excruciating for the rest of us. But sadly, that only really reveals um, how, how we're not free from the opinion of others. But Jesus is free. He's free from their judgment. He's free from their condemnation. He's free from the opinions of others. He's free from how it may affect his reputation. So free, he fights her corner. He traps Simon the Pharisee with an incredible, um, incredible story, a parable of depth and power, which exposes the Pharisee's hypocrisy. And his generosity to the woman is, is just beautiful. Not only does he fight her corner at great cost to himself, But then he goes and does the most generous thing of all, and he forgives her sins. He doesn't need to. He could quite easily judge her guilty for her actions, but he doesn't. He forgives her. And in doing so, he has given the Pharisees all the ammunition they need. Because to forgive someone for their sins is blasphemy in their eyes, because only God can do that. Um, So we're going to close now with... Another clip from the film Les Miserables. And um, the, the scene you're about to see, uh, you're going to see the, the evil chief inspector, Javet, and he's like the, the Pharisee figure. All he can think about is the law and judging people against it. He has absolutely no capacity for love. And in this scene, you're going to see the chief inspector judging. Um, Fontaine and she she has had to turn to prostitution in order to be able to pay for the upkeep of her daughter but notice how Jean Valjean fights for her protects her defends her in much the way that Jesus did in the home of Simon the Pharisee and like Jean Valjean this is sorry like Jesus this is going to cost Jean Valjean they're not going to understand why he's showing such mercy and and care of a prostitute. Nobody will understand and it will undoubtedly affect his reputation and make matters much worse with the chief inspector who's already trying to get him arrested. But Jean Valjean is fierce in her protection. He doesn't judge her and he is free from the judgment and opinions of others. He is generous yet free, just like Jesus. Let's pray.